what is the most effective way to give back. Not what is the easiest. There are lots of marketing on television, web ads all over telling you to donate money and your time to different causes. What is the most effective way? Today, Rob Krasnowski joins us back on the show to talk about effective altruism and how you can really make a difference in a selfless way. Hey. Hey, Rob. Welcome back. How are you doing today? Good. Can you hear me okay? I'm actually in a side room with somewhat low reception. I can hear you just fine right now. Okay, great. I can always call back from the landline. <laughs> no, you, you should be good for right now. We got a, a message from John. John's a mutual connection that Rob and I had that we should collab a little bit on altruism. And if for everybody that's not aware, altruism is the practice of selfless concern for the well-being of others. And we didn't connect for this to really talk about what we were going to do. So I'm interested in what you have to say. I really know nothing about your altruistic past. I just know that the last time we collaborated, you were talking about Spring Labs. And I was, I was doing more research there. And maybe we could get a quick update on how Spring Labs is going before we get into altruism. I'm looking at the yeah, website. Um, and it looks like uh, the, the big key line is, is that Spring Labs has a vision for a decentralized network of credit and identity on the blockchain. You want to elaborate? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so I can give a short sort of uh, one, two minute review for those who missed things last time. And then I do want to say, obviously, a lot of things about altruism. But so to kind of touch back in the Spring Labs point. So just to give everyone a reminder, the one sentence tagline that Spring has been using um, is that we are a decentralized credit bureau. And what that means is that, uh, as everyone that's listening may know, uh, there's three companies out there, TransUnion, Experit, and Equifax, that kind of form the de facto triad. Um, for the space of credit reporting. And what credit reporting is, is whenever you need money and you don't have money, you usually go to a company like a bank or a credit card company to ask for money um, under the premise that you'll pay it back later, right? So we call that lending. And what happens is when you submit an application for a loan, um, they talk to one of these triad companies, TransUnion, Experian, or Equifax, who hold big, giant um databases that have all of your information in it. They know your SSN, your last name, your date of birth, um, every single payment you've ever made or haven't made on any credit card or any loan. And they ask those companies, hey, can you give me this person's credit report, which is just a nice sort of, uh, you know, printout of everything you've ever done um, in the context of uh, taking out money and then uh, promising to repay it. And then they use that information to make a decision as to whether or not to give you money. Um, and to give you an lo a loan, what APR to give you, uh, what credit line, how many dollars to give you, and so on. Um, so what Spring Labs is trying to do is say, that's not really secure. Uh, these three guys have kind of been a de facto moat um, around the U.S. credit system for the last 50 or so years. Um, a lot of the technology around this stuff is really out of date and doesn't respect the kind of privacy concerns that um, are critical to consumers in today's sort of privacy conscious zeitgeist. And um, blockchain technology, which is something that's been on the nascent horizon, offers a really, really good sort of technological piece of the puzzle to provide that privacy and security so that consumers' data doesn't get leaked like it did um, in 2017 when 120 million consumers and probably every single person listening to this podcast, if you're over the age of 18, had their information uh, leaked, including their last name, first name, date of birth, and social security number. Um, so Spring Labs makes that kind of uh, leak impossible by using what's called cryptography, 
um, and securing information directly between the participating institutions, the banks and the credit card companies, so that they can uh, together collaborate on finding someone's credit report. Um, kind of like when you download a torrent, um, you know, a torrent is different from just downloading a link from a, from a direct server, because instead of grabbing it from one server, you're grabbing it from your peers who have copies of the file. And so a torrent file, if you were to actually open it using a text editor, all it has inside of it is just the IP addresses of the peers that have the file together with an identifier for the file. And then you just go ask your peers, hey, do you know other peers that have other pieces of the file until your torrent software downloads the entire file? So basically, Spang Labs is trying to build the same thing, but for credit reports where the file is the information that's available about you and the peers are all the financial institutions you've ever interacted with. And when you apply for, let's say, a new credit card with, let's say, Discover, then Discover would download that information about you from all other banks with your permission. And then just like it would with a standard credit report from one of these three credit reporting bureaus, use that information and lots of internal analytics and data science work to figure out um, what the maximum is that they can afford to give you. Um, that's gonna be good for you, so to speak, such that they don't overburden you with debt um, and you have enough where you feel like you, you got what you need to, to float, but you'll also be able to pay it back um, without any kind of stress on your, on your uh, financial situation. So that's what Spring Labs is trying to do. Amazing how much it's changed just over the couple weeks since the last time I talked. Not really changed, but just kind of funneled down and solidified on what that vision is. And I'm, I'm really excited to hear where it is. <laughs> uh, the vision hasn't changed. I just came more prepared. <laughs> oh, okay. I believe that too. Yeah. yeah. So to shift uh, to altruism, I'll keep it pretty open-ended so that way I can kind of hear what your background's been. But altruism, does, does that word have any meaning for you? Or what's kind of the background that you've had in, in trying to practice selflessness in, in terms of, I don't know, however you want to take it? Yeah. So those are some pretty broad questions. Let me kind of take it a step back and throw the ball back in your court for just a minute, because I think what I forgot to do last time is um, get a much better sense of context. So in particular, you know, I will confess to not having gone through every one of your past podcasts. Um, I don't really know what your listener base is like or whether you've given them a survey and gathered, you know, their age range, um, what kind of topics they're interested in, whether they have a CS background or a political science background. So um, in two or three minutes, uh, Pat, again, like I'm throwing the ball totally back to your court and you can throw it all the way back to mine if you want. It would be super helpful um, just for me, the speaker, to know like who the hell my audience is. Awesome. So far, what Voice First, or not Voice First, what 365 Tech Collaborative AI has with its listener base are mostly two fields. We've got computer science students who are in the range of high school, college, and early on in their career. And then we also have business owners who are interested in artificial intelligence and voice technologies, but who are still trying to implement the technologies themselves. So the students who are in the realm of the age of 18 to 24 years old, and then our business listeners are in the range more of 24 to 35 years old. Okay. 24 to 35. That's really helpful. Okay. So just, it sounds like primarily it's sort of like a bimodal distribution along those two spokes of um, people with a computer science bent that are still uh, in school and people that are currently actively self-employed or pursuing a startup interested particularly in still like CS and tech centric uh, fields. Exactly. Cool. Okay. That's super helpful. Okay. Um, well, that's really nice. Um, I think I can be a lot more specific then and um, sound like I'm less, like I'm explaining, like I'm five, you know, like you like a five <laughs> um, and throw a little bit more judicious jargon in there. 
Um, okay. Well, so altruism, uh, again, that was a really broad question and what that means, I think. Um, let me think about that. Or do you have any examples of how you've been altruistic in your past? That's, that's another. Yeah, um, I think I will. I'm getting to that. But I think I do want to start with the, the uh, sort of big smashing uh, grand uh, one sentence definition. <laughs> um, so I think altruism is generally the practice uh, wherein you take resources that you have accumulated in your life um, and then willingly divest those resources, whether they are money, energy, time, um, writing, whatever it may be, things that, you know, you could use for other stuff, um, which again, is full generality consists of time and um, physical, you know, resources, um, whether they be money or otherwise, and then actively divest them to people um, that may or may need them more than you do, um, or sort of like in the logical limit of altruism to everyone, regardless of whether they need them or not, right? So it's sort of like the platonic form of altruism would be someone that would go to work to their nine to five and then donate it equally, not just to someone that is, you know, on welfare, let's say, but also to the billionaire down the street who really likes money and maybe really enjoys seeing that extra hundred dollars in their bank account. So, um, so that's kind of like the logical, you know, conclusion of altruism um, is in, um, in dynamical systems, there's sort of like, I don't know if anyone's taken like a like a differential equations class, the kind of stuff you take after calculus. But um, there's this notion of like eddies and vortices where you see like sort of like you're trying to model fluid dynamics and things are flowing and there's like like sinks, kind of like energy sinks. And then there's um, things that are like imbuing energy onto the stuff surrounding them by, you know, emanating vectors outwards from the central point. So I think altruists and effective altruists in particular, which is something else I want to talk about, see themselves as rather than being sinks, being sort of like external floats. So when I was a teenager, I played a lot of Halo. Um, <laughs> and the analogy sort of uh, that comes to my mind viscerally is in Halo, there was this thing where um, there's like a, like you go to a certain spot on the map and there's like a, like a whatever, futuristic technology that just pushes you upward to the, to the next level. And so when you step in that, it just gives you a jump. It's like a trampoline, but like as soon as you step in, the trampoline goes off and you're like up in the air. So I think altruists basically see themselves as like setting up pockets of like such trampolines. So that people are like, oh, I'm on a lower level, but I really would like to be on a higher level. Um, they have somewhere to go so they don't have to like arduously climb around the mountain. Um, and there's just this sort of a, a, a shortcut, you know, a flute that gets you to, to level 10 um, so that you don't have to go through some of the annoying hard stuff. I like that. The, the idea that you brought in with Halo of having that elevator. So you're kind of thinking about going out to create those those elevators. You're putting the yeah. technology in place out of not for any benefit of your own, but then just purely to help other people span that gap easier. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So the main reason that John was connecting us is that I run a nonprofit called Voice First Tech, and we are looking to start putting the funds that we're getting from our larger clients fed back into the mission. And I'm trying to figure out ways to do that, whether that's setting up coding boot camps to help students learn how to build voice apps or creating hackathons or online lessons or what have you, how we can invest our money in the most effective way to impact the greatest number of people. Mm -hmm. So that's some of the stuff that we've been playing with the voice first tech. And I'd love to hear about some ways that you've implemented that idea of altruism or even going deeper into that effective altruism to, so that I can kind of start to generate more ideas myself. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I really like that example of voice versus tech. And I think um, before I sort of go back to, to my examples, I do want to uh, tie the definition and sort of like the explanation that I gave before specifically to what you've been doing. So um, so you mentioned, you know, investing your money in the most effective way. And again, that's why a lot of the focus around particularly um, purposeful altruism, which again goes back to effective altruism, which is something else I want to talk about in a bit. Um, a lot of the times uh, gets simplified down to donating money, right? A lot of the times nonprofits ask for money because we kind of civilizationally and operationally are in a situation where money has been the de facto abstraction of most kind of forms of resources. So when I said resources, I mean, you know, there are things like if somebody's feeling really down um, because maybe they had a you know conflict with their parents, no amount of money or donation is going to fix that. You have to sit down and listen to what they have to say and then handhold them through it using empathy and words. So there are things that are not translatable to money. But that being said, like investing the money in um, things that are eventually, you know, in some ways, the subset of action that can be transformed or induced um, through donation um, is still a really effective use of one's money, energy, and time. Um, and so it's absolutely, you know, helpful. And in particular, like setting up coding boot camps and creating hackathons, I think the reason why that offers like that halo kind of style elevator upwards is because uh, learning things is hard, right? Particularly learning technically challenging things is hard. And moreover, we kind of, I think everyone feels this intuitively, but we do live in a world that's like increasingly more and more tech-based and seems to be sort of uh, suggesting to us very explicitly that uh, if you don't learn how to code, if you don't learn technical skills, if you don't learn how computers work, like you're going to get left far behind. So uh, giving people that opportunity to have uh, exposure to great teachers, have coding boot camps, I think is a very, very effective way of uh, improving people's lives, right? Which is sort of another core motif of like uh, altruism. So that's kind of like what I wanted to say um, by tying back sort of my really general philosophical rambling. Uh, to specifically like your approach through voice versus tech. I hope that was okay, Pat. Oh yeah. And one of the, so this brings up something in a book that I recently read called reality is broken. It's a book mm -hmm. that talks about how currently gaming is a massive and a growing portion of our population. And the majority of gamers are turning to games to isolate themselves from reality and to, to escape the reality that they're currently living in. Because reality doesn't reward a lot of the behaviors that we truly want to incentivize in people. So what the book yep. is going about is it's saying that we need to create more games in our daily lives. We need to incentivize okay. work like a game. We need to incentivize society like a game. And doing it in ways to reward people for failing and also reward them for achieving. And then give them uh, quantifiable milestones into how they can level up in aspects of their lives. So yep. in school, giving students the freedom to choose the educational path that they want to be on. And then there are schools that present boss levels where students need to bring the skills that they've individually learned together to attack a boss or real world problem where they actually get to apply those learnings. So yeah. trying to think about altruism in ways that are scalable, because like you said, you can't hand hundred dollars out to everybody. That's just, that's not scalable. So to find a way that we can scale altruism in a non-monetary way, that's, these are some things that I'm trying to think about a little bit more and how, how can we gamify life? How can we, how can we reward people for failing? How can we give quantifiable benchmarks to leveling up and, and do all that? You, you know what I'm trying to say? I know what you're trying to say. And I would just sort of say preemptively, like I would really caution against that approach just because it comes from a really good place. You know, it's like comes from the heart, but at the same time, 
um, it could lead to pretty pernicious long-term side effects because when you're mentioning people sort of getting more immersed in gaming because games offer a good escape from reality and then saying let's gamify reality to bring those people back into reality it's kind of like to me it screams like fighting fire with fire you know like the Hammurabi code applied to virtue where uh, an eye for an eye so it's like if people go into games let's make the game of reality even more exciting but i think that sounds good in practice but i'm not sure that it's going to lead to good long-term results simply because like uh you know as humans like a sense of sort of solemnness and sincerity and gravity is super important and i think by introducing gamification aspects um through things like you know, both social media, Instagram, Facebook, likes, upvotes, things that are intended to sort of corral us, like, you know, like we're a bunch of sheep um, into the right place because we just are not smart enough to look out for our own good because we get too addicted to these things, I think is kind of disrespectful um, at a very like philosophical level long term um, to the fact that like we can really, if we sit down, like meditate and think for ourselves and we can figure out like what it is that we want long term and we don't need to be shepherded. Um, using, you know, tricks and uh, and smoke and mirror. Um, so I think it's really like, you know, it's a bit, it's not a dark art and it's not the light, sort of a bit of a gray art, like this reality is broken book. Um, but I would categorically disagree with, with its effectiveness long-term. And I think if you were to try to employ it, you would get really, really bad uh, outcomes a couple decades from now that um, are, it seems like intuitively like it should work, but I personally think it wouldn't. Hmm. I really appreciate that perspective. That is so different from a lot of the responses I'm hearing, but I, I totally understand what you're saying. Cause I've in, in part of the ways that I've tried to, to employ it, I have felt a little bit of that, what you were saying with corralling of sheep. And that's not what I want to do at all because I'm right there with you again. People have ownership of their lives, whether or not they believe that fact, they have a lot of ownership over their lives. So to respect that, I think is a philosophically good choice for, for, for me to do. So next question I want to turn into then, what do you think the future of altruism can look like? Do you think that companies can employ large-scale scalable altruistic efforts and government can employ large-scale altruistic efforts? Or do you think it comes down to the individual to really make the decision to, to be altruistic in any given moment? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes to both. <laughs> so let me give uh, the long answer now. Um, I think both of those are very important and I think that they build on top of each other and I don't think you can get one or the other without both. Um, and before I talk about the future, like I think it makes sense to really briefly discuss the present because I did keep saying I'm going to talk about this effective altruism thing. So now I think is the time to talk about it. So um, effective altruism, and I'm just going to quote, you know, sort of my recall of the dictionary definition is a philosophical and social movement um, that aims to use evidence and reasoning to determine what the most effective ways are to benefit others. Um, and so the difference between effective altruism and just altruism broadly conceived is if you're, you know, watching TV and you see like an ad pop up um, that shows, you know, somebody has a disease or is starving um, in some country really. Just, you know, go donate and you're like, oh, no, this is terrible. And you open, so you open up the website on your phone and you're like, here, I'll donate 20 bucks. Um, and then you have this fuzzy feeling and you go back to watching TV, and, but you feel better about yourself. So um, I would say that's altruism, you know, one aspect of uh, ineffective altruism <laughs> kind of broadly conceived because you haven't really done any, any thought or research into whether or not that $20 actually went to a good cause. Um, all you know is that there was a really good, effective, you know, marketing department that put an ad on TV. Um, so that's kind of like what the effective altruism guys were really worried about is there's this company called not company, nonprofit organization called GiveWell, um, that was started by a university of Chicago mathematician 
who realized like I could be doing mathematics or I could be, you know, working on uh, the real world. And so he started something called GiveWell to basically take every single charity that exists, um, at least initially in the United States, and then evaluate them. Where by evaluating, he meant like, show me the numbers, you know, like just give me your accounting books. Like the ones that are more transparent with their accounting um, are in. The ones that are completely non-transparent with their accounting and don't reveal like where those $20 go um, are like dismissed instantly. So, and then now when you take the ones that are open with their accounting books, perform a bunch of math and accounting on it, that basically goes, okay, your mission is let's say to, uh, eradicate malaria. Well, are you eradicating malaria? What, you know, percent of those $20 is going to eradicate malaria? Because you're a big organization. So you have to pay payroll for your employees. You have to pay marketing so you can afford TV ads, like the ones that just got you that $20. Um, you have to actually probably send people over physically, you know, to other countries, um, since a lot of these kind of problems are uh, international and abroad more so than domestic. But certainly we have a lot of stuff domestically that's wrong as well, um, and so on. And so a lot of that has costs, right? So if you were to run this as like a corporation, you'd say, okay, well, uh, what are our costs, you know, and how do we shave them and how do we maximize our return on investment? Meaning how do we take that $20 and chop it up in a way that hopefully, you know, 16 to 17 to $18 of that $20 goes to actually uh, fixing malaria, meaning like to, to medicine and to distribution of, of medicine and to, um, you know, actually people that have malaria, because if, if not a single person that actually has malaria is affected by the nonprofit that's claiming to solve malaria, well, that's not a really effective altruism at all, is it? So, um, so I think that's sort of what the give all guys were trying to do is to say, like, let's just rank order these things. Let's just let the numbers speak for themselves. You know, nonprofits suffer perniciously and in perpetuity from a lack of feedback because there's no real pressure, like in a corporation, that you'll go out of existence. Um, because the main thing that drives your existence as a nonprofit is how well you market yourself, which is, you know, the direct cause of people giving you donations and how you market yourself is primarily by exploiting gamifying, right? Kind of like you were saying earlier, um, what makes people have really fuzzy, good feelings about themselves? Like, oh, I gave money to this, you know, like I'm a good person now. Um, and so the, the, the company, sorry, the nonprofits that do that better. Um, that have the the more pathos, you know, TV ads and that have the better marketing campaigns and the raising more money than the ones that are actually um, sitting down, hiring a good, you know, chief financial officer, hiring a good uh, director of strategy and operations to go implement the strategy that is going to fix the problem um, and are spending a very, very small portion of their time and their general resources on actually marketing themselves. And so um, effective altruism is this movement uh, where we should really, like, if we do want to donate something, if we do want to spend our time uh, on something that isn't ourselves or want to spend the money on something that isn't ourselves, um, it is a moral duty almost to also spend a little bit of sub-time in that, you know, portion of time we've dedicated to donating to evaluate where we're donating to so that we don't end up donating to the organization that's basically, uh, you know, spends $500 million a year hiring people to go market uh, to the world how important it is to donate to them um, rather than actually fixing the problem they claim to have been invented um, to solve. So effective altruism requires that the individual take time in addition to the actual donation and giving back, but they, they actually have to go in and make sh do the research and find out, educate themselves exactly. on whether or not it's actually fulfilling that purpose that they're, they're trying to go about and donate to. Exactly. And, you know, I was a little harsh and it's sort of, a lot of my wording is like obviously unnecessarily stringent, but it's just kind of intended to make you perk up and go, oh, wow, okay, I didn't think about, you know, the fact that 
just donating isn't enough. Like I have to actually donate to the right place or the right thing because it's very possible to fool yourself, you know, kind of Richard Feynman style of thinking you're doing the right thing and thinking even as the full nonprofit of thousands of people that you're being effective and you're fixing the problem when really you're just perpetuating it. Rob, I really have liked all of this information you brought in. And I'm curious, final question for you. How do you have any resources that you've used to, to educate yourself on altruism? Are there any books you've read or any talks that you went to? You seem to really have a solid opinion and I would love to, to read a little bit more into that. I think, yeah, I mean, I would obviously definitely recommend like the standard ones, which is go look at the website for GiveWell, go look at the website for Giving What We Can, um, go look at 80,000 hours, go look at uh, just Google effective altruism and, you know, open up the top 10 links in separate tabs and just go glance over each of them. Like all those are great. I think um, in terms of my personal development, it's been a little bit different just because um, I come from, uh, I, you know, I went to grad school for math. <laughs> so a lot of this stuff was like kind of floating in the back of my mind for like, uh, you know, over a decade, kind of, you know, slowly congealing and turning, you know, asking myself, hey, do I want to prove math theorems for the rest of my life? Um, or, you know, and effectively like bet on those theorems, effectively translating into reality 100 or 200 years later, right? Kind of like a lot of mathematical theories weren't really useful until they were useful. Um, or do I want to do something directly, you know, um, stick my neck out and, uh, and go for the core um, without making the big bet, you know, so to speak on the mathematical theorem. So for me, um, discovering altruism was less extrinsic resources and more just internally meditating on Okay, here's everything I know so far. Here's all the stuff I've learned. Um, can I mathematically derive what I should do with my life? Um, and then it basically, I got to the exact same point that the altruist got to. So I was like, okay, well, you know, they figured it out using, uh, using um, inference. I figured it out using derivation from scratch. Um, but, you know, I'm a mathematician and they're uh, a wide array of, of some mathematicians, some non-mathematicians. It's really good that we converged the same answer because it tells me that the answer is probably the correct thing to be doing with your life. Um, but that's sort of like my personal difference. I don't think most people could implement that in practice because it's um, a lot more time intensive than just going and um, reading like a book. Let's say. Hey, you've taken your unique experiences and made them into its own form of philosophy, which I dig the hell out of. And in a field that, again, a lot of our listeners are coming from tech and computer science to have this effective altruism rather than like me coming into this i had a totally different view of altruism you've given us a lot of valuable information and for that i thank you rob um we always love having you here on the show and i can't wait to collaborate more in the future i appreciate it. thanks so much but i really like being on here thanks so much